Good evening, and welcome to the August 2019 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, if you attended any of the Pride Parades this last June, you likely saw big corporations like AT&T, Google, and Apple flying the rainbow flag on shirts and banners and on their floats. And they were marching with huge contingents of employees that sort of left me with the impression that this company supports LGBT people. But an organization called Credo Action has uncovered that some of these huge corporations, like AT&T, are secretly donating huge sums of money to anti-LGBT causes and candidates. In fact, they found some 500 of these hypocrites who fly the rainbow flag in June, but then work against all that pride stands for by supporting anti-LGBT causes. Tonight, we're going to talk with Credo Action in the first part of our show. And in the second half of our hour, I'll introduce you to Sarah Brewer. She is the new executive director at Face to Face, who recently replaced Rick Dean, who retired after 32 years of serving our community. Sarah is the perfect person to step in to fill Rick's shoes, and I think you're really going to love getting to know her. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Albi Radio News for this Sunday, August 25th, 2019. I love to change the world. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of August 25th, 2019. The Washington Blade reports that at least 26 men have been arrested in Washington, D.C.'s Meridian Park in the past year. The men detained for cruising by the U.S. Park Police face one or multiple charges that include disorderly conduct, lewd acts, unlawful entry, and sexual assault. According to John Albanes, a defense attorney in D.C. who corresponded with several lawyers for the arrested persons, He said some of the defendants are reporting that they were arrested by undercover officers who initiated the sexual advances. Albanes told the Washington Blade that undercover plainclothes park police officers entice men in Meridian Hill Park and then proceed to arrest the targets for the crime. Most often these are misdemeanor sexual abuse charges. He added that he found the pattern extremely disturbing and reminiscent of the Stonewall days when gay men were often the target of police discrimination. The tactics used in these cases just fly in the face of proper police work and should be exposed, he said. And in a response to the Blade, Sergeant Eduardo Delgado of the U.S. Parks Police did not deny that the officers were in plain clothes. However, he did address whether they were sent out to entice men. He said the U.S. Park Police received complaints about loot acts that occur at Meridian Hill. And he added, with any other complaint of illegal activity, they take action to stop it. Plainclothes officers are just one method of enforcement and sometimes are used to deter, stop, or arrest violators within the park. Meridian Hill Park, known informally as Malcolm X Park, sits in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of D.C. near Adams Morgan. Its grounds, known for its neoclassic style with cascading waterfalls and a 13-basin aqueous artwork, are a National Historic Landmark maintained by the National Park System. And in Alabama, a student, Holly Geralds, wore a tux for her senior pictures. Geralds told the Washington Post that she's always dressed in masculine clothing, including for prom, and the typical black v-neck drape didn't feel appropriate. When Geralds opened her class yearbook, she wasn't surprised at all to discover that her photo had been left out and that she was listed instead as, quote, not pictured. Her name was also misspelled. The school superintendent defended the school's decision, saying the district doesn't micromanage the school's policies on yearbook pictures before offering a half-hearted promise to look into the matter. 
He said yearbook guidelines are developed by each school and that the county has not micromanaged these decisions. And finally, don't forget the new documentary 5B that tells the story of the amazing doctors and nurses at San Francisco General Hospital who cared for AIDS patients during the first 15 years of the crisis premieres this week on almost every streaming service starting on Tuesday. I've seen it, and I think it's an exceptional film. And we'll have two of the men who shared their stories in this documentary on the September edition of Outbeat News in Depth. You can learn more about this exceptional documentary at 5bfilm.com. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. I don't know if you're like me, but I do pay attention to companies that support LGBTQ rights, and I try to stay far away from companies like Chick-fil-A that openly oppose our rights. But at least with Chick-fil-A, I know where they truly stand. Now, like you, I've seen AT&T march in pride parades and rainbow wash their logo in order to show their support for the community. But what, what really angered me was when I read about how they and other corporations like Microsoft are secretly funding anti-LGBT causes and candidates. Thais Marquez is the campaign manager for an organization called Credo Action. They do social justice work, and they are the ones who have uncovered this story. Thais, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I appreciate your time. We've shared a couple of stories this last month about corporations that appear to be hypocrites. Uh, But before we get to that, tell us about Credo Action. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. Um, Credo Action is a social justice network with millions of members across the country that sends tens of millions of petition signatures and hundreds of thousands of phone calls to decision makers each year. Our members participate in meetings, protests, and other direct actions for progressive change. We campaign on many progressive issues like LGBTQ rights, immigration, climate change, and impeaching Donald Trump. Uh, Credo Action is the political arm of Credo Mobile, which is a mobile carrier that also gives back to progressive communities by donating to organizations like Planned Parenthood, Movimiento Cosecha, Sunrise Movement, and many, many more. Wow. I've never heard of the organization. How long has it been around? It's been around for a long time, probably since the 1970s. Oh, my goodness. I'm out of touch. Have you done much work out on the West Coast? I know you're based in New York, right? I'm based in New York, but Credo Mobile and the Credo Action Team is actually based in San Francisco. Okay. Well, I'm the one who's out of touch here. It's great to find (laughs) out about this. Uh, So you have uncovered uh, a problem that I'm sure has been going on for a long time, and the issue Mm -hmm. is there are a lot of large corporations that... Pride wash, we'll call it that. They display a mm-hmm. rainbow flag. They give some money to pride events. But in the in the background, behind the scenes, they're giving large amounts of money to anti-LGBTQ candidates and initiatives. Talk about this. Mm-hmm. Give us some sense of the problem. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm sure all of us have had a hunch that these corporations who uh, sponsor pride don't actually stand with our community in the ways they claim to. Um, But this recently came to light um, when an LGBTQ activist uh, started a campaign called Zero for Zeros, and they researched corporations and where they were putting their money politically. Um, And there were a few articles that I was seeing that was really naming the ways in which tech companies and other corporations were putting their money in right-wing homophobic extremists. Um, and really felt like 
this was an effort worth elevating and putting on the radar of our members. Um, so we sent a, an email and petition to our members, and we now have over 50,000 supporters who are really who really want answers from tech companies and corporations who have really rainbow washed their uh, marketing and their corporations that during the month of pride, they get to appeal to the LGBTQ communities that we buy from them. Wow. It just feels almost like we've been betrayed here. Talk Mm -hmm. about who some of the big offenders are that our listeners would know. Yeah, so uh, some of the biggest offenders we laid out is AT&T, T-Mobile, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Dell, but there are certainly many, many more. Um, And of those, AT&T between 2017 and 2018 gave $2.7 million to 198 right-wing extremists, uh, many of whom are actively trying to dismantle hard-fought civil rights that our community has fought for 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 decades. And some of those people that they have funded include Representative Jim Jordan. He's one of the nation's top anti-LGBTQ bigots. He's been actively undermining our protections and promoting discrimination. He's also defended bans on same-sex marriages. He's led the effort to block marriage equality from being recognized in D.C. And that is just so terrible to me because companies like AT&T, you know, they, they claim that they have a commitment to equality, but they're funding people who are trying to take that away. And they've also funded Representative Brian Babin, who criticized an Obama-era policy on gender-neutral bathrooms and schools. Uh, he actively promotes transphobic ideologies. And AT&T, Microsoft, Amazon, and Dell happily gave him thousands of dollars. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I have to say I'm really even more happy now that I'm a total Apple user and not a Microsoft user. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm pretty loyal to that brand, and I think I would really feel exploited if all of a sudden I read uh, that Apple, for example, was doing this Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. I mean, people have got to be really angry about this. Yeah, I mean, I personally feel really outraged, and this is absolutely exploitation. Um, There was a study conducted by Popular Information uh, that I'm sure that a lot of these corporations uh, have know and use, but it studied LGBTQ participants and 66% of adults, LGBTQ adults, will remain loyal to a company or brand that they believe is supportive of the community, even when less supportive companies will give better prices, more convenience. And, you know, I'm sure that corporations know about this statistic and will and are spending millions of dollars to appeal to the community and are taking advantage of our loyalty. So not only are they profiting from their commitment to equality, but they're also using our money to dismantle civil rights that the community has been fighting for. This just sounds completely unethical, and that's probably an understatement. Mm-hmm. I mean, do they? Where are the scruples? Where don't? I don't even know if I should be asking that question. Maybe it's so obvious to me. It seems completely unethical. It's yeah, it's just so unethical, and it really is an understatement. But I, I really hope that as uh, this campaign, not only from our petition, but also from Zero for Zeros, um, as more people learn about this, that 
that that outrage we can turn into action. You know, I, I guess I've seen some maybe inkling of it, whether it's directly associated with it or not, in these groups that are protesting pride parades that include or allow corporations to march. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you seen around the country? Is there a connection between the discovery of this hypocrisy and the protesting, or is it more grassroots than that in your mind? I think that there, you know, a lot of people know that this that this isn't surprising necessarily. You know, there's been people who have been protesting at Pride for many years now um, because it seems like every single year Pride becomes more and more about corporate sponsorships and less grounded in the history of Pride. Um, I think that we need to stay grounded in the fact that, yes, this that Pride is a celebration of being out and proud and being able to be your full self, even Mm -hmm. if just for a day, but that it's also rooted in a really painful history of violence that has been inflicted on the community. Um, You know, we have Stonewall. Yeah, I think we need to stay grounded in, in that history. And I live in New York City, and we always have a queer liberation march every single year, which is the alternative to Pride, where there's no corporate sponsorships. It feels more like a protest. It feels more about liberation and and less about, yeah, having corporations try to pander to the community. I guess guess for me, there's a huge difference between uh, corporate participation that's sincere. In other words, a company Mm -hmm. that has come along, that they truly embrace equality, acceptance, inclusion, and mm-hmm. they put their money where their mouth is. That, to me, feels very different than participation by AT&T in this case, who shows mm-hmm. up to a pride parade with a bunch of people. They make a, a tacit donation to a pride organization while they're giving mm-hmm. millions to counter what pride means. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can appreciate true evolution and, and you know, sincere, uh, a sincere commitment to being inclusive, that feels good to me, but this hypocrisy just doesn't. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it, this is also happening outside of the United States, right? I mean, I read an article mm-hmm. we reported on a story last month involving Gay Star News, and it, it's gone out of business. They're a, an LGBT nor- news organization that's been around for a long time. But one of the things that they cited was these corporations uh, in England that are doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are global corporations who make money across the world. So it's really not surprising to see that this isn't just happening here in the United States, but it's happening across the world and at pride events across the world. So we know that in the U.S. they're funding right wing homophobic politicians and they have they have no real ethics, which is why it's not surprising to me that it's happening everywhere. Uh, whether it's here or in London or or wherever. Yeah. So a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of power that comes with displaying that rainbow flag. You walk up to a local business and you see a sticker in the window and you just assume that there is some sincerity in the fact that this business is is welcoming of LGBT people. Mm -hmm. So for these corporations that are doing that and for consumers who want to find out about what the truth is behind that, how do you, where do they go? Unfortunately, there's no good answer for this. I think there needs to be so much more research that goes into looking at corporate PACs and and where corporations and businesses are putting their money and making that widely available to the public. 
Um, but the best place to start is the Human Rights Campaign's Corporate Equality Index. It rates how corporations treat their LGBTQ employees, but it doesn't exactly address where those corporations put their money politically. Um, so I would recommend uh, checking out the research done by Zero for Zeros. Um, I know they're doing a lot of work. And uh, yeah, you can check out their website. They have a bunch of different uh, corporations and you can see how much money they they gave and who they're giving their money to. Um, so I, I would start there. But I do think that, uh, you know, for LGBTQ researchers, this is such a great way uh, for us. Yeah, it would be great to have LGBTQ researchers look into this and uh, make this widely known to the public. Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask you about the HRC's Equality Index because that seems to be probably the most visible and centralized source of corporate uh, involvement uh, or corporate attitudes around equality. Do you think HRC is paying more attention to this? Have you heard anything about whether they're going to incorporate some sort of a rating for or, or a demerit for companies that are doing this? Um, I haven't heard anything yet, but I would really love to see that happen. I mean, AT&T scores pretty high on their corporate equality index. Uh, so, you know, we need to look into, have a whole picture of where these corporations stand, not just on what they put on their website or uh, company policies that they have, but actually where they're putting their money. Got it. So what would you want our listeners to do that are hearing this? I'm an AT&T customer, for example. Uh, what would you want us to do? Are, are you advocating that we dump AT&T and go somewhere else, um, get get vocal on social media? What do you think? I think all of it. You know, if you have the means to be able to dump AT&T and, and T-Mobile and all of the corporations that uh, we've been talking about, um, I would really recommend it, you know, and there's many alternatives to where you can put your money that reflects where your values are and to support businesses that are genuinely supporting the community. You know, that's pretty high bar. But if you can't, you know, I would sign our petition at credoaction.com. Uh, certainly tweet at them. Make sure that we are going to keep the pressure up. Um, and I really hope that we get to take uh, action at their front doors um, and really have AT&T feel the pressure from our community to stop giving money immediately or they're going to lose massive uh, amount of support. Yeah, and they're huge, as is Microsoft. I mean, I would love for Microsoft to be able to stand up and be sincere as well. They've got a lot of LGBT people working for them, as do these others. Uh, it's just really, really sad to see. Where can folks go to learn more about Credo Action and get involved? Uh, you can check us out at credoaction.com. Uh, you can see all of the different campaigns that we're working on. Uh, you, you can take action on the website. And we also give $150,000 every month to three progressive organizations, uh, which is something that I'm really proud of Credo for doing. Uh, we use the profits from the company to be able to actually fund change. So you can go on the website and check out who we've given money to um, and even vote for who we should give money to next month. Uh, so you can definitely do that and learn more about the different issues you work on. Fantastic. And if you missed any of those uh, websites, Zero for Zeros or Credo Action, we'll have them on our own website at OutbeatNews.com. You can just click on show notes at the top of the page. 
Thais, thank you so much for sharing this information and more importantly for exposing uh, this problem to us. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me on. We're going to take a quick music break. This is Jackson Brown and Leslie Mendelson with their song, A Human Touch. It's the theme song for the new documentary coming out about San Francisco General Hospital and the AIDS crisis called 5B. And that film premieres on just about every streaming service this Tuesday.
And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth on KRCBFM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, you are going to love our next guest. She's a Sonoma County native with worldwide experience in HIV prevention. And we're lucky enough to now have her leading Sonoma County's premier AIDS support agency face-to-face. Last year, Rick Dean, the former executive director, retired after 32 years of serving our community. And it was hard for me to imagine who could possibly step in and lead the work in a way that was contemporary for our time. But I think you'll agree after meeting Sarah Brewer, she is a gift to our community and perfect for the job. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you as part of Face to Face and now on the air with us for the first time. Before we get to some of the questions uh, about Face to Face and when all that's happening, talk about how you got there and a little bit about your background and where your passion for this work came from. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm actually, I grew up in Petaluma. I'm a Sonoma County native and um, went to San Francisco State. I, I studied international relations and there I got really into you know, like social justice. I think San Francisco State's a ripe environment for that. Um, and when I was um, in New York, I had the opportunity to intern with Doctors Without Borders. So I got real exposure to um, their access to medicine campaign and making medications for HIV available in developing countries. I was just really struck by how it is that people could be dying of a disease for which there's a treatment because the medications were unaffordable and they weren't making them available in developing countries. Um, so from there, I was really inspired and I went and got a master's in international development at the University of Amsterdam um, and was also lucky to get a second, I, I got a scholarship and I did a second master's in medical anthropology and looked at, um, again, around HIV, but also around, you know, alternative underground drug treatment and, and the lengths that people would go to get themselves clean. Um and so I was really lucky because I got uh, asked to come work for one of my teachers from that medical anthropology program at a consultancy firm. So there we did some work for the uh, Global Funds to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. So what they did is they did all the audits of the procurement and supply management for 70 countries, you know, were they spending the money correctly? Were the medications actually getting to people who needed them? And then also some policy work for the European Center for Disease Control on um, HIV preventions for MSM. This was right around the time when PrEP came out. In fact, we did all this work and then PrEP was released and we went, well, that's a game changer. Um, and also their viral hepatitis strategy. And then from there, I went and did uh, work for something called the Access to Medicine Index. Again, back to that passion about access and, and social justice in developing countries and was a researcher and advocate. What we did was we ranked the top 20 pharmaceutical companies on, we had seven different technical areas, but I focused on intellectual property and pricing strategies and how companies can use their business models to leverage you know, the availability and affordability of medications for HIV, for neglected diseases, things like that in developing countries. Um, so all of this was very much at a research level and kind of a theoretical level for me. And it's really great international level where I got lots of exposure to different responses in different countries. Um, but I wanted to work more at like the clinical ground level. And, and I decided to come home to Sonoma County. My parents were aging and wanted to come home. I was gone for 18 years. Um, and then I was really lucky to get a job at Santa Rosa Community Health in their, with their HIV team. It's an extraordinary group of people. Um, and so was managing the Ryan White program there um, and had the opportunity then to work with face-to-face because it's a very coordinated system of care. And um, we worked closely on a couple housing projects together. So um, 
you know, I think growing up in Sonoma County, it was a really interesting arc to come back because I was a, you know, I was a kid at the height of the AIDS epidemic here and I was really impacted by it. I had a lot of family friends who passed away. Um, and I think that it's just always through everything has just been this sort of cord, you know, that's that's inspired me and it's and it's a passion of mine. So when Rick told me he was retiring and this came up, it was sort of it was just too good to be true, you know, an opportunity to come here and get to work with this incredible team and have this you know small organization with a huge impact in this community. So I'm really excited to be here. Wow, it sounds like a match made in heaven. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the global work. Were you able to go and, and work in some of these developing countries that you were studying? A little bit. I mean, there was definitely some, you know, like I said, a lot of it was a sort of a um, theoretical policy level. So we had a lot of meetings in, in developing countries, and I got to work really closely with consultants and, and you know, community-based organizations in, like, Uganda, for example, and Ghana, you know. Um, also worked for an organization for a little bit that did some work in Central Asia and there the epidemic is really driven by um, injection drug use Um, and so worked with this you know they worked with this organization called AIDS Foundation East West that worked with the Netherlands and in Russia and really promoting harm reduction and um, you know just linking HIV and TB services so I got some exposure firsthand but you know I think really where I was I was just really um, how, how do I say like um, inspired by and just really shaped by a lot of these really amazing, you know, on the ground folks who've just been doing this for years and years and years. Um, so learned a lot from them. Fantastic. Russia and Uganda. I can't think of two more difficult places to work yeah. uh, on this on this issue because there's so many things that are going on there too around sexuality as well. And the laws. Right. right. So as you looked at face-to-face, you said that you'd been working with face-to-face while you were with Santa Rosa Community Health yeah. for so long. You know, what what did you see? What did you see in the organization that really sparked your interest in wanting to take on its leadership? There is such a um, a deep level of compassion and care and just genuine, you know, support and love that you, it's palpable. I think in the office, but also just among the team. And when I learn more about the history of the organization, I mean, that's it's been a, a constant. And and one of the things that I really like about this organization is the ability to be responsive and nimble. Um, And they are really thoughtful about staying ahead of trends, what's happening, and then responding to it. So one of the things that I really appreciated, for example, was the syringe exchange program, where DAC was providing syringe services, and they started scaling down face-to-face, said, well, we got to do it, and did it. And I appreciate that. I love that. I'm I'm like that. And it's like, well, yo, there's a need. We got to do this, you know? So for me, that's really attractive to be a part of an organization of people who are like, nope, it's got to be done. We're going to do it. Yeah, that's for sure. And you've been able to see it really evolve from, as you mentioned, the sort of dawn of the crisis uh, when you became aware of HIV mm-hmm. back in the day when people were dying from it now to really being able to get kind of a grip on it. Totally. Uh, which is great. So as you look out at your role and your vision as the executive director, uh, you know, what do you see in that vision? Yeah, I mean, you know, don't don't fix what's not broken. I think that that the organization is doing a really great job. Um, and I think that we just need to continue doing a lot of what we're doing. So, you know, along the lines of care, just continuing to provide the housing support and benefits support and evolving with the policies, you know, that are linked to funding as well. And again, staying ahead of that, um, you know, what we have is a 
largely aging population of folks living with HIV, and we've never experienced that in the history of the world before. So, you know, there's research that's being done on on what that looks like and what the needs are, but we also know from a you know community level, we need to respond to that um, and get ahead of that because there's medical issues. I think that a lot of the chronic diseases that aging people face usually hit in the 60s and 70s, and folks living with HIV, we're finding them in 40s and 50s. Um, so there's sort of a medical side to that, but also just a real like social isolation and, and a lot of other psychosocial as well as all the other cost of living, you know, issues that go on. So, so staying really focused and targeted in that area and then really, really strengthening our integration around prevention. Um, there's a lot of really great medical advances, as we know, with PrEP. So you can take a pill a day to prevent HIV. We need to continue to get the word out about that. We need to really, I think, get more... Um, targeted navigation services in-house to really get people's benefits in order. The clinics are doing it, but I think that we, we're ready to do it too and to do you know really warm handoffs for getting people linked to PrEP. Um, the other thing also is with our syringe service program, I think getting the word out about that and the benefits of it, you know, the value of it, um, maybe dissuading some myths that, that exist about it. And um, you know, just again, staying ahead of, of the, of the science too, because, you know, they're at the International AIDS Society a couple of weeks ago, they shared some results of initial research of an implant, a PrEP implant that would last for a year. Um, you know, that's really exciting, but there's also all kinds of other behaviors and things that go with that too. So, um, you know, we just need to make sure that our, our services are really, um, staying on top of those trends and that we're getting the word out and getting people connected. Yeah, you're right. It has changed dramatically from the 80s and the 90s. Uh, it really isn't a death sentence anymore, as long as you know that you're positive right. and that you get treatment. And so, you know, what's your sense about where we are in Sonoma County with the ratio of people? We we know how many people that we're treating who are positive, right. roughly, but what, what what's your sense about the population of people statistically out there that have HIV and don't know it? Yeah. Well, so so in Sonoma County, we the the 2017 data at the end of 2018 was analyzed, right? So we know that there's about 1,600 people living with HIV in Sonoma County, and of that, it's estimated that 15% don't know that they're HIV positive, and that number's based on that CDC algorithm. Please don't ask me how it's calculated, <laughs> but um, but that's the number that we go by in, in a country. Um, I, what we're seeing, and you probably can speak to this as well as a test counselor, but um, we have a lot of young people who are testing positive, 25 and under. And I think that the youth have a very different experience of HIV. For a lot of them, it's always there's always been treatment, so it's it's not as scary as scary as it was for um, for a lot of us older folks, you know. <laughs> Um, and so I think that there's also a lot of socioeconomic factors that are associated with that. I think it's a very different world for young people. Um, and so, you know, where that intersection with HIV is, I think there's, there's a lot of education. Because even if it's, yeah, there's a treatment, but you still have to continue to have uninterrupted access to that treatment. You need to have access to health care, you know, and then there's also all the housing and jobs and all the other things that go with it. Um, so in terms of like getting tested, I mean, we find, I've, I find a lot of youth are, are, know about getting tested. They know that they need to get tested, but um, it's, it's a very different attitude about HIV. And I think the other thing that we're seeing too is, so the trend in, in Sonoma County is that it's sort of stable, except for in Latinos and, and youth and um, women. So I think the other piece of that is a, having the, the, uh, a proper cultural 
response to the Latino population and making sure that we're testing in the right areas. A lot of education. I think that there's, um, you know, cultural stigma and discrimination in some folks and, and, you know, making sure that we're tailoring. We have the right people in-house. We do have bilingual, bicultural, but making sure we have enough people to really make sure that we're actually doing the testing in the right areas and that we're overcoming some of those barriers. Yeah, you said so much in that. And, you know, it strikes me that youth really don't have the history, the experience. They didn't witness what you and I witnessed in the early years of the epidemic. And there is a sense that, oh, it's not a big deal anymore. Do you think that there are still people that fear coming in to be tested, even though they're aware that it's a manageable virus? But do you think there's still a fear of coming in and that's keeping people away? I think so. Yeah, I do. I think so. Um, And I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know if it's because people, it's not about being afraid of dying or getting into treatment, but it's still, you know, it's a scary thing. I think that there's a lot that goes with an HIV diagnosis and, you know, you still have to negotiate. You need to have difficult conversations with partners, things like that. So it's not necessarily an easy burden to bear, right? Even though they're just like, oh yeah, there's treatment, there's a pill. Um, so I do think that there's fear. And like I said, also, there's still a lot of stigma in a lot of communities about being HIV positive or even about homosexuality and an association of HIV as being a homosexual disease still. I think that there's that still exists. So, you know, again, I think that that's a big part of our work is shifting those perceptions. And, um, you know, prevention is the best way. <laughs> Just stay negative. Know your status. Keep getting tested, you know, and take precautions. If you think that you're going to be at risk, take precautions. Right. And and you mentioned that being able to connect with those populations of people, women, for example, who wouldn't ordinarily think that they're at risk. Um, I I think advertising is still largely geared at men who are having sex with men. I mean, that language has changed a little bit. But rarely, if ever, have I seen an advertisement that suggests that straight women, for example, Mm -hmm. should come in and get tested. Um, and maybe people here haven't even made the connection as to why women are at risk. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think that there, well, so there's a number of different ways. I think that, you know, if a, a woman is a, a sex worker, that's one way. And I think that we do, you know, we see sex workers coming in and getting tested and being very conscientious about their health. Um, I think that there are women who maybe, you know, marry to or have male partners who are having sex with men who they don't know that they're doing that. And maybe even the men don't identify as being gay, right? I mean, that's why we use the term men who have sex with men. It's not an identity of being gay necessarily. But, um, you know, again, if, if, uh, in that person's mind that having sex with men is so stigmatized, they're not even going to admit that it's happening, but they're putting themselves at risk. And then they bring that risk home and women don't know that they're at risk. So one of the things that, you know, a couple of years ago was really um, pushed and implemented was routine HIV testing in healthcare settings. And that was something that we did at Santa Rosa Community Health. And I think West County Health Centers is also implementing that, but that everybody should have an HIV test at least once in their lifetime whether they think that they're at risk or not. And I think that that's a way that the community health centers can capture a lot of women. And I think also, you know, that's a place where, um, you know, again, I think we're a testing site where people come in, it says face to face. I think we do a good job of not making it like, you know, um, hey, come in here, it's HIV. But I think people know, know face to face. But um, in a healthcare setting, 
it, it, it's, it can be more private in, you know, conversation with your doctor and it's just routine. It's just normalized as part of your care. And so I think that's an opportunity to really capture a lot of women, have conversations, maybe if there's, you know, also issues of domestic violence or they can't negotiate their own health with their partner, um, those medical settings are also really valuable. And again, that's why the partnership and the coordinated response as a community is so important. Yeah, and I think that's one of the really beautiful things about face-to-face. It, it would be awesome if every doctor and every healthcare professional were educated on HIV and were open and objective in talking about it and kept their own subjective and religious and moral opinions out of it. Totally. Um, but I can't tell you how many people have come in for testing in the few uh, times that I've had a chance to test uh, who have said, I don't feel comfortable going to my own doctor. Yeah. That's why I'm coming here yeah. because I know that I'm going to get um, a non-judgmental interaction with somebody who yeah. can really just give me information and not you know, share an opinion about my sex life and what I'm doing. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that's what's so valuable about the services we provide. And it's for free, you know? I mean, we're not asking any questions about your income or your background or, you know, your your financial status. Um, I mean, I, again, I, I, I think that that's what's really special about face-to-face is that it's just where we meet people where they're at, totally non-judgmental, you know, caring, compassionate. Cool, what do you need today, you know? And have those really frank conversations and take as much time as we need with people. Yeah, it's really great. Um, let's talk about the U equals U concept. That has been in advertising a lot. <clears throat> and as I think about you know, someone who has a managed viral load that's undetectable and the lack of risk, if we want to call it that, of being able to, to transmit the virus if you're under treatment, it almost strikes me that it's safer to have some unprotected sex with someone who is undetectable, who's being treated, who knows their status, then perhaps it is with someone who's never been tested and who's out having unprotected sex and doesn't know their status. I mean, it seems odd to think about it that way, but right. talk a little bit about you equals you. What, what does that really mean? Sure. And, and your thoughts about risk in that, in that context. Sure. Yeah, so, so like you said, you equals you is the undetectable is equals untransmittable, and that was a, a campaign started by the Prevention Access Campaign, I think, in 2016. Um, and what's great about it is it's really a really snappy, clever way of, of getting this message out because, you know, we used to talk about treatment as prevention. I mean, this is the concept, is that somebody who has such a low viral load, it's, they cannot, we can say with confidence now, they cannot transmit HIV through sex. I mean, that is just, it's incredible that we can say that. And you're right. So somebody who may be putting themselves at risk for HIV and doesn't know it, if they are HIV positive, it gives the virus an opportunity to replicate. So there's a high viral load, making it much more easily transmittable. Um, So in that context, you're right. It, it It is almost safer in that regard. But again, it requires that people are staying in care, that they're taking their medications accurately, you know, that there's an uninterrupted um, supply of medication and all that. So of course, you know, know your status. If you're HIV negative, do your best to stay HIV negative. But this whole notion of, of treatment as prevention, it's just, it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. And when you talk about a, a potential population of 15% of folks who are living with HIV and don't know they have it, that are out and about, um, wow, that 
I mean, that's really, really scary to me, but also very exciting to know that we're at a point where we can control the amount of virus that's out there totally. to a point where it can't be passed on. It's really, really cool. Well, and I think the other really exciting thing about the campaign and about that notion is, you know, the opportunity to shift public perception about living with HIV and with that, the discrimination or stigma that go with it. Um, you know, I mean, it wasn't even that long ago that a person living with HIV couldn't get a, a visa into the U.S. That only just changed a few years ago, right? So, I mean, I think that our legal structure still has a lot of catching up to do, and certainly the policies that go with it, you know, and even just un, unaddressed assumptions that people have about HIV. Um, so this is a really powerful campaign um, and really excited to get the word out about it. Excellent. Let's talk about needle exchange. That's a relatively new service. Um, and it's pretty controversial. There, I, I, I've heard a lot of people, particularly in my law enforcement contacts, who really have great concerns about, you know, are we empowering people to use drugs? But, but you have some experience with it on a variety of levels. You've had a chance to see it here now at Face to Face. About how many people does that program serve uh, today? Yes. Yeah, so last year, uh, I just ran some numbers on this. Last year, we served about 3,000 people. We had about 2,000 unique visits here in the building um, and disposed of over 350,000 used syringes. So um, when you talk about it being controversial, like I don't understand that. right? And also, again, I've had the opportunity of working internationally in countries where it's been adopted. The policy supporting it, funding has been supporting it for a long time, and they've seen the impact of it. So, you know, I think it's really, um, there's no evidence to support that it promotes drug use and all the evidence to support that it, um, there's, I think a person who accesses a syringe service program is five times more likely to access treatment for their, um, for their substance use. And also there's a huge benefit to taxpayers and a huge public health benefit, um, you know, what we do here is that we provide, we provide access to clean, you know, sterile equipment. Um, that includes the syringes and injection equipment. We also provide overdose prevention, including naloxone. So we train people how to use it, how to recognize the symptoms of someone overdosing, provide fentanyl strips, because a lot of the overdoses that are happening are where fentanyl is laced in methamphetamines. People don't know what's in there, and then they overdose. Um, we also provide education about safer injection techniques. We provide wound care and then linkages to care for wound care for infectious diseases. A lot of people talk about their STIs, so we get them treatment for that. I would love to see us here also be able to expand around syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia testing here in-house and also linking all of that because, because of all the risks associated with STIs and HIVs. Um, and then the other thing we obviously, we offer everybody when they come in for syringe exchange, we offer them HIV testing on the spot hep C testing on the spot, education about the transmission. Um, we tell them about PrEP, offer them, you know, we can get you linked onto PrEP if you need to. Um, and a lot of times, you know, it's just, it's really great. It just sparks a conversation. I mean, I'm, I'm always really um, struck by how conscientious some of our clients that come in to access those services are about their health, um, you know, and wanting to stay healthy and wanting to stay HIV negative. So, you know, we, we meet people where they're at. That's, that's the idea. And then if somebody is ready to seek treatment, we're a, what we call a MAT access point. So MAT is medicated assisted therapy, which is, um, um, research shows that it, it's basically a combination of medication to help with withdrawal and cravings. So it's buprenorphine or suboxone or even methadone along with counseling and therapy. So we will get people linked into care depending on where they can access care, whether it's San 
Center is a community health safe program, which is an amazing program, or West County Health Centers, or you know wherever they need to go. Um, and our treatment navigator is is there to help them along the way as well and check in with scheduling appointments, anything else that they may, may need help with. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think it's kind of I think in the beginning of the program here, it was a little. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of promotion about it, but um, word of mouth, I mean, it has spread. And so people come from all over Sonoma County. We have folks coming down from Lake County, accessing our services, making their, their trips down here. Um, and it's always, you know, it's a really friendly atmosphere. We, we show up with like with, there's a lot of trust from our clientele and they're really open about what's going on with them a lot of the time. And also we'll bring equipment and, and things like that out into the community as well. And to, if they're living with a bunch of people on the street, they'll They'll bring um, supplies out to them as well. So it's a pretty successful program, but we're just going to keep growing. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's, it's clear that there's a very strong connection with the rising homeless population in this county. Um, I think there have been a number of stories about the IV drug use problem nationally, the addiction problem, the opiate problem. Um, but sometimes maybe people lose sight of the fact that it is a huge problem here in Sonoma County oh my God. that is closely associated with the homeless population. Totally. It almost seems like the purpose, usefulness, service that Face to Face is providing around HIV is more urgent now for this IV drug use population and homeless population than it is for the gay community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that, you know, um, HIV has always been a disease of stigma and discrimination and, and injection drug use has always been a part of that in Sonoma County. I mean, and elsewhere, but I think in terms of like the face of HIV in Sonoma County, it's very much been about gay men. Um, and it still is, but you're right. I mean, we're seeing increasing numbers. I read a statistic that someone dies of an overdose every eight days in Sonoma County. Um, that's just, I mean, this is crazy. I think it's something like 135 people a day in the U.S. It's more than guns and car accidents. It's just, like it's, it's astounding. Um, and you're right. Yeah, so our response needs to be to meet that and get ahead of that. But that's why, you know, every single person that I've, I've done an exchange with is like, oh, my God, we need the Narcan. We need the, the Narcan. We've all overdosed. And it's really scary, but it's also... You know, it's like they, they, they're very aware of their HIV, you know, and like the risk of HIV. And then I think the, the overdosing is the scarier part for a lot of people. But again, I mean, the, the, the value of these programs is that they, you know, they keep first, um, keep first responders safe, right? I mean, people are able to access their care there. Um, I read a statistic that it saves um, 30, sorry, the, the opioid overdose impact is $75 billion a year in the U.S., and the cost of a syringe service program is about $70 a person a year. So when you think, you know, and we're talking about um, public health, we're talking about, like, the criminal justice system, we're talking about just um, lost productivity, things like that, and also just the healthcare costs of, of drug use. Um, these programs are a really cost-effective way. I mean, I hate to talk about it in those terms, but but it is, you know, and, and you're right. I mean, I think that if we can use these cost-effective interventions to get ahead of it, it makes a lot more sense. The cost of living with HIV is estimated at $400,000 for a lifetime. That's a huge cost on the taxpayers and on the healthcare system. Um, 
but going back to your point about like the face and the response is, yeah, I think that we're going to see more of that. I think just nationally, we're going to see more of that. And I hope that there's continues to be, there's a really great um, response from the, the governor's new budget for funding for syringe service programs and the state office of AIDS around um, prevention, making money available for prep and for syringe exchange and um, for testing and education. So Yes. I mean, again, I think that that's historically face-to-face has always, like I said, been ahead of, well, this is what's coming and this is what we need to do. And these are the people who need our help. Right. And so then for someone who doesn't really understand the connection with IV drug use, I mean, I think it's probably fairly straightforward, but but the needle is such an efficient way of transmitting the virus. I would even suspect in some ways it is more efficient and more risky to transmit the virus with sharing a needle than it is to have unprotected anal sex. Would you agree? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I'm always cautious about, you know, giving um, those kind of statements. But yes, I mean, and I think it's because, you know, the risk of anal sex is it's a lot of that has to do with like tearing. Right. So when there's exposed, like the, the virus is more capable of, of, of penetrating basically but with a um needle that's going right into your blood yes and it's such a protected environment for the virus it's an yes. oxygen free environment and and so i get some questions from folks about well okay if you're going to provide needles great but why do you have to provide everything else and that is because that virus can live and survive in all of the gear of people yeah. share gear right yes exactly and hep c i think lasts even three times longer so even once hiv is no longer active it Hep C, I think, is three or four days. Hep B as well. Don't quote me on those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, as you look out five years from now, you know you clearly have a good handle on where things appear to be going. But as you look out five years from now uh, at what Face to Face is doing in terms of programming and services, what do you see? Yeah. I mean, I, again, I think it's going to be more of the same. You know, I think that we, you know, like I talked about in the beginning with our, our aging population, I think that we really need to, on the care side, um, continue strengthening those services. You know, we provide a lot of housing services um, and, and funding. Um, when you think five or even 10 years from now, kind of when I think about funding for our care program, um, when I look at like the Ryan White program, for example, that was about medical care, when the Affordable Care Act and access, well, basically the removal of the pre-existing condition of HIV gave people access to health care, the, the funding for direct medical services became less relevant and that money could then be spent on more social supportive services. And there's a little piece of me that thinks, well, what if that happens with housing as well? And it's very likely possible because, you know, obviously somebody who is housed, it's it's better for their care. They're able to stay engaged in care, therefore stay on detectable. Um, so, you know, housing is a huge indicator of health, right? Um, but if, say, housing for HIV-specific populations goes away and gets integrated into services, that is going to pose a huge challenge on our on our folks that receive that support and also in our community where housing prices are just astronomical. So it's something that I'm staying close you know, attentive to and our team is watching, um, but it's going to require, you know, being really thoughtful about our, our um, care program. Right. Well, and of course, somebody has to pay for all of this. Mm-hmm. And there's a great fundraiser that Tony and I love to go to every year coming up uh, next month. 
and it's called Art for Life. And yeah. if you've been in this county and haven't heard Art for Life, then you must be living in a hole somewhere because it is a huge event and very, very popular. So talk about Art for Life and talk about what's going to be happening this year. Yeah, so it is our 32nd annual Art for Life. It's the longest-running art auction supporting HIV services. Um, it's a really, I mean, I just think it's such a neat story about how it started, just with an, an artist early in the days of face-to-face, um, didn't have any money to donate, but said, you can have my artwork and sell it, and then let that be my donation. And it just, you know, picked up and more and more artists have done it. So every year we, we have this incredible auction. This year is going to be particularly special because we're going to be honoring Rick, Rick Dean, who's the executive director who just left, who I'm sure many of you know. Yeah, it's coming up on Saturday, September 21st, and it's going to be out at the Sebastopol Center for the Arts this year again, right? So if somebody is coming for the very, very first time, talk about what they are going to experience. So we're going to have um, so a lot of beautiful artwork up on the wall. It's a silent auction, um, and we're going to have a. Um, there's food and there's wine. We're going to hopefully have some um, wineries pouring as well. Um, we're talking about doing some new things as well, and I don't want to spoil any surprises because Gary Saperstein, our, our development director, is working hard on that, and he's the master of events. So I'll let him unveil all that. But um, and then we're going to have some really great. Um, stuff just to honor Rick too. So I encourage anybody who's ever been involved with Face to Face and knows Rick and and loves Rick to come to the event. Great. And where can people go to get tickets for Art for Life? So our tickets are available on the website. Um, And if you are not able to come, of course, we're always welcoming sponsors. So if you're interested in sponsoring the event, you can reach out to Gary Saperstein directly um, and, and he can help with that. Terrific. And you can buy tickets via the website at f2f.org? Yes, or you can just go to artforlifef2f.org. Perfect. And if you missed those websites, we will put them on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page, and we'll have all of the links right there. Sarah Brewer, welcome to Face to Face, and thank you so much for being with us tonight. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you so much. Isn't she just great? Hey, before we end tonight, I wanted to remind you to mark your calendars for this Tuesday and to watch the new documentary 5B. It's the story that I told you about Ward 5B at San Francisco General Hospital during the first 15 years of the AIDS crisis. It's just extraordinary. There's a lot of dramatic moments in it, and you won't want to miss it. We'll have two of the men featured in this documentary on our show next month. So your homework until then is to watch this film. It'll be available on just about every streaming service starting this Tuesday. And you can go to 5bfilm.com to learn more. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's right here at 8 p.m. and only on KRCBFM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In-Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I love to change the world But I don't know what
broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move. Silence is quiet, and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe. And I know you feel like dying, but I promise we'll take the world to its feet. Move mountains, bring it to its feet. And we'll 